Welcome to the Eric Schlein Podcast, where personal development platitudes can get the hell out. Completely devoted to ontology, breaking down distinctions of human consciousness as an access to enhancing performance. Here's your host, Eric Schlein. Kaiser on Laura, how are you? Hey, Eric. I am good. Uh, I'm the whole gamut of every emotion uh, from extremely accomplished and excited to defeated and tired to like motivated and exhausted. I feel both ends of the spectrum mm-hmm. running through me every day. <laughs> yeah. Nope. A lot what of about you? Do. How do you feel right now? I don't know. Just kind of chilling. My, my dog is currently eating the uh the wood of uh the chair next to me so he's enjoying that it's like a woodpecker and then <laughs> reincarnated as a dog you know and what i did what's that i got little hamsters for my daughter but they're secretly like what i look at when i'm up I, i'm writing a book right now so i have to stay up late writing yep. and then I just hang out with them hey i can't really so, like, hear your connection it's very spotty dog, but the connection here has been bunk lately. Is it okay right now? It's better. Yeah, it was just for a few seconds. Do you use wired Ethernet? I only do because they like lead these courses online. So I can't have a moment of disconnection. Okay. So I wired it. I use Wi-Fi when I'm just working like on a book or something. But if I'm on Zoom, I'm I'm wired. Yeah. It's the hmm. 90s in my bedroom. <laughs> wow. Do you, use, do you use AOL as well? <laughs> I've got mail. Yeah. The internet choices in my neighborhood are actually a travesty and there is not really a good connection in Brooklyn. And the Mm -hmm. reason being in Manhattan, the buildings are bigger so you can get better internet, but here they don't have as big of a, like, why would they even do business in an apartment building with seven, with 14 apartments when they can go to Manhattan and there's 150 apartments, you know, so they don't even, we do have quite outdated technology. It's annoying considering how everything else, you know, around here costs, they should have good internet. Are you in an office or is this your bedroom or what what is is my home? This is my, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B right now. I live a big apartment with an open floor plan, which was great until the world ended. Mm -hmm. (laughs) in We're in our our bunkers doing podcasts. I know everyone's got their mics rolling. It's not bad though. It's not a bad, I mean, not as good as like doing this over a coffee, but I mean, it's not terrible. You know, I really agree. I love, you know, like this is my thing is connecting with people and yeah, I've got people from all over the world taking my courses and I get to look at them and they normally I would have to travel to wild destinations to meet them or they mm-hmm. would have to like leave their families for a week and buy airfare. And so even though it's, not the same as sitting down having a coffee. I'm finding I actually have relationships with people I couldn't otherwise have. And COVID really facilitated that in a way 
just having the internet accessible hadn't done. I had nothing. Or, really- or it would take, it would take more effort. I, cause I feel like, like I've always loved doing like video chats and phone calls and all that, but I felt like I was kind of ahead of the curve. People were not as like open to that. You want to do a video chat tonight? Why can't we just text? Yeah. I don't no, know. It's Cause true. it's not a real conversation. I'm, you though, but like, I know this about you, that you care a lot about real conversation and accountability and the actual connection where most people aren't really comfortable with any level of intimacy. So why would they want you to see them? Why would they want I don't you know about to- most people that I don't, I don't think people see the impact that texting has on you interaction. Like, cause I think people were so stuck in this like efficiency like we just want to be efficient, efficient, efficient. A lot of people, like I think, do it. I well, not. I think I, I know they they do it at the expense of being effective, right? So it's like if you want to have effective partnerships, effective connections, effective relationships, it is not a conducive space to be at all texting. And that is not conducive to that at all. Well, I just think people are also avoidant. That was what I meant. Is a lot of people are avoiding the hard things to say. So mm-hmm. it's easier over text or email, even though you can't make your point as clear. Yeah. See, I'm way more insecure on texting. I'm like, cause to me, it's like, well, I don't know how I'm going to come across. How's this going to be taken? I'm blunt as fuck. So like, if I say I something, it's like, holy shit, that just like freaked them out. Did I offend you? Like if you didn't respond, it's, it's hard for me to gauge how, what I'm going to say is going to land with someone. Like, I don't know the headspace they're in where I feel like I just can calibrate with someone much easier in a real time conversation, be it on the phone or on Zoom or in in person. Yeah. I work with so many teachers and they, you know, are on Zoom with their students right now. And the students turn the camera off. And I will have this one student of mine who is a literature teacher for like high school. And imagine just having zero feedback, no face, no sound. He's like, it makes me feel like I'm totally failing. Just how uncomfortable is that to have no engagement? Like people are just sometimes off because we're so... We're like I did a Zoom call with a potential investor a couple months ago, and oh my gosh, she it was she was so weird. Like literally, she she's like I can only see her eyes. She's like move the <laughs> well. At first, I was like I can't see I can't see you. Is is your video like I don't want to fucking talk to you. Like I'm gonna see who the fuck's like you're giving me money. And then it's just like a pair of eyeballs. I didn't say anything. I was just like, whatever. This well, is people really- of a certain age, because I do uh, try to attract a mature student base. People of a certain age just like to shoot their chin only. <laughs> on what's me. the deal? What's the deal with that? It's not native to them. We have had access to video chat more than half of our lives. Yeah, right? I guess that's true. Yeah, they have had it for the maybe it's it's been accessible, but they've only been <laughs> using it. For nine months. Right. Or since no, they had a grandchild out of state or something. No, it's true. It's like you t- and it's like your parents or your grandparents and you like show them something with a computer and like it's not intuitive to them. Exactly. No, when I was when I was in high school, I started this I started this business. I had a business where I was I would um go to like senior citizens' houses and teach them how to use an Apple computer. Cool. So it was like it was very niche because you know, I was like I'm 16, I can charge like $40 an hour and if if you understood how little I had to know about computers to do this, like I remember one session, it was like I had to teach the guy how to turn on his computer and then how to use his mouse. And we spent an hour training him how to use the mouse because he couldn't understand how to use a mouse. <laughs> there was no coordination, like he didn't get it. Can I tell you a secret now back in response to that? 
You can tell me any secret you want. Just know that if you tell me a secret on here, you're going to have an audience also. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. I have to give away that I'm with the times in certain ways, but I'd never played like video games. So my partner the other day, we had his video games going and I was like trying to control the situation. And I didn't know how to make it go forward and back using a keyboard. And I kept like jerking the guy's head up and I didn't know how to aim or, and uh, if you could have just seen the disbelief that I couldn't control a video game, like I've had a computer, but I like was I've been a mad. I've always been like I'm writing, I'm writing. I never yeah. really played games. I was connecting with words. That's all. No, I've been like that. Where then like a lot of the new games, and I say new like the last ten years, basically anything past like N sixty four, it kind of fucks me because like you know it used to be you just have like a directional pad to like move around. Yeah, and, now, and now you have like the up and down add left and right that you have to coordinate at the same yeah, time. Yeah. To me, it's like unnecessary. Well, it's because it's a three-dimensional space. Okay. So I, you know what? The, the, you know what I think the best control was where it avoided all this. Did you ever play the Mario game on N64? It was like the first N64 game. My across the street neighbor had it. So I've definitely played it. Yeah. There was Banjo-Kazooie and there was a bunch of these like 3D yeah. games. And you all, and you had a little joystick, the Z pad is what yeah, it was yeah, called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked that too. You're I right. liked that. I didn't have any issue with that. And you know what? I got around a 3D environment fine, but now these <laughs> idiot engineers with, I need to use two hands to just like look left and right. It just is to me, not natural, but you know what? That's, I'm probably like someone's grandfather in that you respect. Exactly. I'm, an, I'm it, a dumbass dinosaur that doesn't understand how to be coordinated. Incredulous is an understatement at how I was looked at. Like, how do you not know how to move a video game player? And I was like, I just literally, my brain is shutting down. My, my so. brain doesn't, can't do both at the same time. It like, doesn't compute. If you give me a map and then you turn me sideways and I have to look at the map, I cannot figure out what to do without turning my body. <laughs> I have to actually turn my body. So one of the reasons it took me so long to learn yoga is because I actually have a very weak association with where I am in space. Really? Yes. And it took me years to start to develop almost an average sense of where I am in space. Well, it's a good thing you weren't born a dude because like we're even worse at that. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Sorry. We're better. I think we're better at that. Yeah, we, we are yeah. better. Yeah, we're better at that. But then women are better. At, like I think it's like spatial recognition. We're like that's why like a lot of it's like more women are like interior designers and stuff like that. Because like I buy I look at a couch. I can't figure out how it fits in my living room, but if I, I, if I, can't, I can't do that either. Okay. But you know, you put me in like a random city and like after a few hours, I can kind of calibrate where I am. Where, I love which, New York because we live in a grid. When I, when I lived in Boston for all those years where yeah. I met you in Boston, I could not figure it out until I just did it over and over and over again. And then well, also GPS over, screws you over too. Totally. But if Do I came you, from another perspective to the same place, I would have to like go to the perspective I knew to figure out yeah. how to get home. I no, could I, not. Yeah. I found when I was going to school in Boston for my freshman year, when I turned off my GPS, basically I couldn't, I didn't know my way around for like the first six months of college. And then my GPS broke. This is before we had GPS on our phones. Like my actual GPS broke and I had to like learn my way around for like two weeks. And in two weeks, I figured more stuff out than six months with a GPS. They do really make our brains not work. And I think that's like education doesn't really work anymore because we don't need to be able to know the things that we're required to know to build skills from because we mm-hmm. have the technology. So like 
kids don't see the value in learning addition and multiplication, even like the baseline math. Right. They're like, why would I do that? I can just, and it's so unmotivating. They're disincentivizing learning. A lot of the time, the way we use tech, unless you can figure out how to game it and make it fun, like these things, it stopped you from learning how to get around. And I think when we don't think about how tech affects us, it changes our behavior in ways that might actually be a negative. Because if you're a kid and you literally can't figure out how much something costs if you buy two things, because you've never figured out how to add two numbers, because you're like, why would I do that? Yeah. Um, that affects your entire life. <laughs> yeah. How do you find teaching yoga? Did you, do you teach yoga through Zoom? So I teach yoga, but not in the way you're picturing it. Okay. I do teach through Zoom. I'm a teacher trainer. So I, what I do is I certify people to teach children's yoga over Zoom. And don't I they teach. have to like do, I mean, don't they have to do poses and stuff? Like, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, you know, I occasionally instruct and I do have private sessions, but more than anything, I'm the teacher's teacher. And yeah, we, we use Zoom um, and I pre-record some things as well because it's really hard to capture everything live sometimes. Mm-hmm. So there's a, I do think pre-recorded material can be good depending what you're trying to get across. Yeah. Um, yes. Teaching live on Zoom is amazing. You know why? The, why? the relationship between student and teacher had vanished and it had just become this factory of like, how many people can you get in the room? Mm-hmm. And what has come back is like serious student teacher relationship. Well, at least for me, like I'm like a scholar and a big dork. So I'm attracting these people that are like into that in a very small customized group in a way that's like so academically stimulating and fulfilling for you too. fulfilling for all of us. We're all freaking out. Like I get gifts in the mail and I get love letters. I get like the type of feedback that just makes you want to keep going. Who are you getting love letters from? My students are really into it. What happens in there is such, I know you know about transformational, like I'm much more of like a um, transformational coach, I would say than a teacher. Uh So it's like launching them into the next phase of their lives and just being there to facilitate that kind of change where people Mm -hmm. are afraid and they can't see their greatness. And you're like, I see it. I'm watching it on video. Like I'm watching six hours of footage of you privately. Like I can see what makes you amazing. And sometimes people have their blinders up to their own talents and to just be able to help people see that. And then they're so confident because they didn't realize what they have as a special skill. Yeah. It's really exciting. Well, your partner might have some competition in like 15 years from now when they grow up with all those love letters. <laughs> These are adults. Right? Oh, okay. They're okay. adult women actually. Oh, These well, are- well then you, you might already have some competition. These are like community for life type people. They're like, so it is actually, you know, it is competition for my attention. I'll give it that. Cause like, yeah. I, I, I feel such a, um, and I know you understand this too, such a mm-hmm. deep connection to the people who I'm working with that yeah. I would pick up the phone, a drop of a hat for them, you know, like, so it is competition to the other people you love, but there's room for everyone. <laughs> no, I don't see it as competition. Not like, you know, if someone's friends with me, then it's threatening to someone else. Yeah. Know, there's yeah, nothing I mean, to go around. Exactly. As long as it's good energy. So yeah. I think so too. So what are you, what have you been up to? Like project wise? I mean, you're always doing something. I'm doing so much. Like I'm just going to give you a quick rundown. because I exactly. don't actually know how you do everything you do. It's kind of why I wanted to come have you on is like, <laughs> I just feel like I could bring you on every week and you'd have some new thing you're doing every yeah. week. Well, that's actually one of my problems is I am so creative and I really have a lot of follow through for the creative process, but I just need to get a team behind me to do the rest. So I actually mm-hmm. have a team behind me, but anyway, so I get a book deal, which is wild because 
you know, I've been putting out content for so many years in the yoga and mindfulness space. And this book deal comes to me. I didn't submit anything. They just said, Hey, we are contacting you as a subject matter expert. There's 21 other people in the running for this book. It's a general audience, nonfiction on mindfulness. So basically teaching regular people how to live mindfully for beginners and intermediates. It couldn't have been a better project for me based on exactly how I write. So I submitted a sample and I got launched to the top two. And then after the interview, I got the book deal, which is very cool. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's a new kind of publisher. So it's a media company that uses data and search like relevance to figure out what people are need. And they make Mm. a book around that. So the normal turnaround on a book is three years. They hired me in November and the book will be turned in January 4th. They hired me the end of October. I have an eight and a half week span to write the entire book, which is 85% done. And it comes out in May. So I'm going to have you and all your friends. Everybody has to buy a copy. Of course. Just like your book came out. But the algorithm is so strong. Like the data they use. I'm still waiting for your review, by the way. I have to read your book though. And I'm in, I'm, my book is due on the fourth and I'm actually going to read it before I review it. Cause I'm not going to give you a fake review. I would hope not. I don't want yeah. a fake review. But my book is about to come. Like my manuscript is due January 4th. Like so I'm so when your book comes out, send it to me. Yeah. I will read it and give you an actual review. That's what I'm going to do for you. So this comes I out. In May. Um, I've been doing that. So that's been happening for the last two months. And then I've got this kids yoga teacher training that I've been doing every three months since COVID started. It's a 95 hour career program. And my third group finishes this Thursday. I have a month to market. I just got all my commercials made. And on January 19th, 2021, the new cohort will start. So I'm hoping to get 15 in there. I got my ad agency's got everything ready and got really strong testimonials. So I'm just hoping for the good vibes on that. And it's been a lot of uh, work related stuff, but like my personal life has been just like total ups and downs throughout COVID. So it's like, I feel so strong in one area. And then I started writing this sci-fi comedy absurdist novel. And I've gotten eight chapters done in the last three weeks. And it's absolutely hysterical. And it's like all I want to do now, but I'm I'm working on this nonfiction and it is so funny. And it's Mm -hmm. also like, post-gender near future book about, you know, it's, it's basically like an apocalyptic book with absurdist humor. And in the book, the main character's love interest wants to die. She wants to suicide because everyone's been blown up. And like, do you let somebody do that? And so he- Can you just upload them into the cloud and they can just be an avatar? Well, you could, but the, the love interest is kidnapped onto the vessel as they're escaping the blown up planet and has like in the the love interest lucid dreams you find out that she's a suicide rights activist because healthcare has gotten so good people don't die naturally so you see like scenes of her marching like right to death my body my choice like Mm -hmm. and no one actually has a gender in the book too because they've overcorrected so everyone's they them and what do you, you know, overcorrected? What does that mean? You know, like political correctness when you yes. try to do right and you overcorrect. Okay. Yeah. 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 Like everybody's they, them, and nobody knows how to do family planning. So they just sterilize all people and you can only be built. How, how, do, how does that work? I'm asking this genuinely cur- like curious. I've never met someone who says I'm they, them. Oh, well, I'm married to a trans person and was they, them until they became a she. So basically. Oh, is, a- is your partner now a, a she? Is that? My spouse is a she. Yeah. 
we are like a nesting couple. We're like, so, so explain that dynamic. I mean, I don't have any political correctness on the show, but I want to respect obviously privacy of other people. So share whatever you're comfortable sharing about. What's yeah. So I actually am going to yeah. make a Facebook post about it. So may as well say it. So we got married, but ended up being kind of a bad fit romantically. And I, huh. because I'm basically straight, cis, hetero, female. Married okay. to now female. So but we are best friends. We love each other. So on the Kinsey scale on a one to five, where are you? I don't know. What does that okay. mean? Which one is fully straight? One is fully straight. And then it goes. I'm a like- 1.1. Okay. So you're pretty much as straight as they come. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also, but I've like, have always attracted very gay men, like gay, like, but like, you're, but you're, men or so how, oh, explain, how does this work though? Just psychologically, you're a straight woman or nine. I like sensitive people. Hold, I like hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. But you're married to someone that identifies as a woman. So, so it's how, a nesting partnership. So over the last, so right before my best friend died. But how does, but hold, 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 I'll get to that. I just want to unpack this. How does that even, well, first who proposed? Back then they were a he. They were a he. Okay. And we were just but a then, normal couple. And then as this was, well, fuck normal. I mean, whatever, what's normal these days, right? But we weren't normal. And I, we were I, trying to be a couple that also had other partnerships. So then he's transitioning. But didn't you say he was they, them at the beginning? No, no, he, was he wasn't. He so you go she from he to, to they, them to, to she. They, yeah. And during this transition, how do you deal with it? I mean, are you becoming less attracted? Are you still attracted? The and only thing I different? did like, what? Yeah. was support. So basically this, mm-hmm. I had childhood trauma. Okay. So when things are hard and changing, I dissociate from my personal experience. So okay. I didn't actually know how I felt. I just supported and I just supported and went through it. I didn't even think what I wanted. I just yeah. thought like, I'm just like, I had a savior complex. Like I'm going to be there for you. Like I didn't think about, I didn't have insight into my own experience and I was completely mm. detached from it for a while and just like focused on my work and ignored it mm-hmm. largely other than support, support, constant support, but not really thinking about. And then we just started to like, not really have that spark and I don't want to overanalyze it, but there's a lot of other moving parts you don't know about. Okay. So right now we both have partners and we're going to stay together. We're going to raise our child Mm. together. We're going to like, we have like combined family. We don't know what it's going to look like, but we're going to be together as a family. Interesting. Well, certainly unique, but it seems like you're making it work. You know, I don't get, I don't get how, see what you're saying, even though that's different and unique to me, that just seems more natural. Like what you're doing. Like, okay, I, I feel connected to this person. We like raising a family together. We can have different partners, blah, blah, blah. Like, like there's, there's less drama that way. Well, and like, why do you have to destroy a whole family just because you want to have sex with someone else? Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like both of our partners are like soulmates to us, you know, but like we are also, we've been together for almost eight years. And wow. yeah. I think what people are fed is this lie that, you have to be in love with somebody for the relationship to have value. People are all wacky with myths around relationships these days. Monogamy is a lie. Long-term monogamy is a rare thing. And I mean, look, if it works for you, that's fine. But I'm not saying you shouldn't go for it, but just if, if your expectations are that you're going to find one person you want to be. I had, a girl, I had a girlfriend once that got angry at me when I found another girl attractive and I verbally said it. 
And I was like, holy shit. Like what mind, what, what's your psyche like that that triggers you? Why do you think people are like that? It's because they're fed from movies that there's one true love and they only have eyes for you. Think of all the things that people learn to learn. But there's a lot of crazy shit in movies that's batshit crazy. Like the fact that that has brainwashed an entire society to think a large portion of society to think that is like mind blowing to me. Listen, I support anybody in any relationship format. And I think happiness is too high of a bar. Let's be honest. Everybody Mm -hmm. should just aim to be themselves and to live a loving and generous life and to do what makes you come alive and to Mm -hmm. fuck happiness as a goal. Because if you make happiness your goal, then you're never going to be happy. That's fucking stupid. Just try to be yourself. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I didn't this ask if like I could swear on your podcast. You can, I've already sworn. So there's really nothing you can't say on this podcast. So yeah. yeah just, just like, you know, if you like stole some candy at a, like a candy shop or something, you just don't incriminate yourself. But like, other than that, <laughs> like I don't give a shit. Um, I don't really think I've done anything incriminating in a while. But what I, I wanted to get back to your question about they, them, and trans and non binary. Because I think and then that's you'll a- tell me about how you robbed a bank last week. Okay. So I think that the gender conversation is important, yeah. especially if you don't know anybody, because here's the thing. Yeah. There are so many people that do not feel that they are either a, just a male, a male, like masculine man or a fem, feminine female. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, you've seen like tomboy or like effeminate gays, but there wasn't really a place if you weren't like a drag queen or an effeminate gay to be a born with a male body parts and exist in some other space. Right. So you don't feel like a manly man. Right. So that is like gender non-conforming and trans is if you actually feel like you have the wrong corresponding like genitals to how you feel inside. Right. So non-binary tends to be where people land before they realize they might be trans, but not everybody who's non-binary is trans. Trans is actually like, I want to be the gender I was not assigned at birth. Okay. So, and there's also more that makes up gender than what you're aware of, because like you have people that have different configurations, like, you know, the chromosome configurations are not always just XX or XY. That's not yeah. true. There can be an extra chromosome. How do you, how do you distinguish that by saying, okay, we want to honor your, I mean, I, I think it's important to honor people's choices. I think it's important to honor people's choices, like whatever makes them happy. If you said to someone, you know, I identify as a car or I identify it's you know, not I, the same thing. Oh, or I, I feel like I'm a seven-year-old baby or something that should wear diapers. You know, where do you... That's a kink. That's called a kink. But what if that is you, you feel wrong not being a seven-year-old? Where do you draw the line in terms of saying, okay, this is something, you know, maybe you should get some help for from a psychologist versus, you know, this is... Because one is gender and gender is a... it's imposed upon you, just like marriage, just like monogamy, mm-hmm. right? Men are this and women are this. And it's actually not true that binary is a lie. It's mm-hmm. just like why religion is also pervasively cruel and harmful to people who don't fit under that umbrella of stereotype, like a woman who will be submissive to a man and all this stuff. Like these gender roles are highly damaging because like I actually, as a child was very boyish And I used to, before it even like transgender was a thing like that we knew about culturally, used to identify myself as a boy when I was a girl. Hmm. Okay. But luckily I wasn't like given hormones or anything because that was just really like, like gender also doesn't have to be the thing you decide your whole life. It's how you feel 
It's how you feel you you're inside. So it's yeah. not like, oh, I'm going to be a seven year old. That's that's a totally that's not a good analogy. Um, OK, well, what about giving a kid hormones? Like, that to me is kind of fucked up. What is it? If a five year old says, hey, dad, I think I'm a girl. They won't put a five year old on hormones. Haven't they, they put, do haven't they put kids? Don't they put kids on hormones? They block puberty if you're not sure so that you don't be, get your secondary sex characteristics such as breast. Is there, I mean, has there been shown to be like actual like long-term health consequences for doing things like that? Hormones have negative health consequences. Yeah, they do. Yeah. It's only if you really, really, really don't, your voice and your body hair doesn't match who you are inside. The consequences of that is psychologically damaging, which can be fatal. People die from being trans because they don't fit and they don't right. have a safe place in the world. And then they put themselves in unsafe situations or they commit suicide. So it is not a perfect fix because there are negative side effects, but yep. for some people it is life saving and absolutely necessary. Hmm. Okay. If you didn't feel like who you are fit in the, and like, this is the thing. Cause I think people do have trouble with it. Cause then they're like, Oh, well then if you, if you just feel that you're a pedophile, but like that's illegal for a reason right. because it damages children. But if somebody's gender doesn't damage anyone else's life, it doesn't matter. It's their own life. Like it's. But again, if, if I'm, five and I go, I know that I'm actually meant to be a couch or a car or something like that. They're not the same thing. One is a, your gender. I'm asking out of curiosity. I'm not, I'm not attacking any of this. I don't really think people feel that way. Like there's not a lot of people who say, and there's actually a book called Matilda and the orange balloon by Randall Mm -hmm. It's a children's book where a sheep sees an orange balloon for the first time. And Mm -hmm. it's like, I am an orange balloon. And she proves that she is because she's round and and flying and warm as the sun and so she actually is an orange balloon but that's because she's a little kid and little kids can be whatever they think right that's that's imagination versus actually how you're calibrated in your brain i so i guess i mean there's a a lot of kids that when they're little they think that they're gay and they change their mind as they get older i mean i i've had friends that you know, they, they thought they were gay when they were little and they go, Oh no, I'm not actually gay. Like, or thought they were bi. And then they realized, no, I'm just totally gay. Well, that's the thing about gender too, is, is, is it unfolds as your life goes. Right. Forward. So what I'm saying is when you're a kid and your brain hasn't fully developed and you're still kind of finding yourself and you know, there's all this stuff that kids deal with. They have psychologists and stuff involved. It's they not do. Somebody, okay. There's no willy nilly. It's a really serious process actually. Okay. We have a lot of books on um, transgender children in my house because I have a four-year-old and we have a trans parent. That's why I'm asking you. you. You would know a lot about this. So It's actually like usually what tends to happen as young as toddler or preschool is the child will not want to wear their clothes because they don't feel that they're the right clothes. And mm-hmm. little boys will want to wear dresses or the little girls will want to, you know. But using the like. argument that all gender is made up anyway, then wouldn't you say a dress is just socially, you know, it's only it's only for girls because society says it is? Yes. I, I would agree with that. Okay, so. But then there's something about the way your voice and your body hair and your breasts make you feel. Mm-hmm. I'm not a woman and I have breasts. How are you going to feel about that? Or I, so none of it's perfect. The surgery, not perfect, not great, yeah. right? The hormones, not perfect, not great. But better than feeling complete dysmorphia. And people who are transgender are like 42 times higher risk of suicide than regular LGBTQ children. It is extremely life-threatening for somebody to be told you're not who you say you are. We don't believe you. We discredit you. Now, whether or not they take drugs. Of course. I mean, look, it's the same thing where 
you know, and, and there's still issues in the LGBT community where define themselves as gay and you're in an environment, especially in an environment where people are saying, well, no, you just need conversion therapy or something. Chance of suicide is significantly higher. You could say the psychological impact is much greater, but it, I, it's not that being gay causes suicide. It's that being gay in a culture. People, one in six transgender people will attempt suicide. Right. And I think because we live in a culture that literally tells them they don't exist. They tell them they don't exist and they harass you on the street and Mm -hmm. people should just get in the habit when you introduce yourself of of asking your preferred pronoun. That is a way to make somebody feel welcome. And don't just ask the people who look cisgendered, which means you look the gender you were assigned at birth. You just get in the habit of saying, what's your preferred And so a lot of times on Zoom, you'll see the little box say, Lara Hawkeyes are in parentheses, she, her, or they, them. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a way of letting people know some people, some people that would be extremely uncomfortable asking that question. It's not everyone. It's true. But if you, it might make... Just like I wouldn't want to force people to... Yeah, but it's not forcing them. It's making them aware that there are people that need that question asked. Right. And, and I'm aware there's people that don't need that question asked. Right. Like, like in your box, if it said, you know, like you, right in the Zoom call, you, you can, if you want to put, you know, she, her, you can put that. And, and I would call you whatever pronoun... You want to be called. I, I'll call people whatever pronoun they want to be called. But asking is a way to show your allyship and that you understand and you care. And it's someone, to someone that cares about it. To someone that cares about it, but who's going to care about it is the person affected by it. Right. So that is why it's worth it because those people are at such higher risk. They're highly vulnerable population, even mm-hmm. adults. And it is worth making a few people uncomfortable that pretend it doesn't exist to make those people know you are a safe space for them. If you are, you choose to be. Yeah, maybe. I don't necessarily think we should be altering or if they can be, you know, saying, hey, look, you know, our society is changing. I think most people had become more accepting to that. Like I've known people who are trans. I've had friends who are trans. I'll call them whatever they want. But But didn't you say you didn't know anyone who was trans when we started the call? No, I I said said you didn't know anyone, they, them. I didn't know anyone, they, them. Yeah. So I just didn't. Yeah. But but if someone wanted to be called, so actually, before I was asking, how, how do you even say that in a sentence grammatically with they, them? Um, like, if I, like I'm going to call you, I'm going to call you. Like the plural, they, them. Okay. So they are this way. Or... I'm going to call them later. Okay. Gotcha. They're coming gotcha. to my house tonight. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So like, I, and I, what's their shoe size? I can't remember. That's okay. Like, got, got it. Just the normal way. All right. So I think that it's important for society to be accepting of different lifestyles and identities and all that. What I tend to not like is where one kind of person, because they feel discriminated, whatever, where everyone now has to all change their behavior towards them. That, that creates all other kinds of conflicts. So well, you know, the, it, is the system is made for cisgendered white, rich people to thrive in and to other people to be marginalized. And so the, I would actually argue to say, Changing the way we talk is a way to support the marginalized people and bring them from the margins into the majority. We all have to change the way we speak. It's a really important thing. And mm-hmm. the most inclusive, I'm an educator for 20 years. So mm-hmm. inclusivity is extremely important to me. I've worked with kids. I mean, it just like makes me tear up thinking about what some of them go through. And like, why wouldn't you just be more inclusive? Why do you have to keep spaces unsafe for people when you can just learn to change your language and make somebody feel like they belong? Because even if they don't think that they're trans or non-binary now, like my spouse found out as an adult 
mm-hmm. and has continued to evolve on that. Just hearing that that there are safe spaces for you, that you don't have to go to an LGBTQ party to feel safe, but mm-hmm. that in the world, in business, in banking, yeah. there's awareness around this. I, it's, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. You know, you benefit, I benefit from the system that oppresses others. And that's why you're like, I don't understand because we never had to think about it. Now you're thinking about it because you understand there is a significant health impact on people. No, absolutely. I think it's important to be inclusive. What I'm saying though is like, do you think I should ask you, you know, do you have two parents or was your mom a a single mom who never got married and and had a kid out of wedlock? That's not the question. I mean, that has nothing to do with what's your preferred pronoun. What yeah, I'm saying, ch- ch- children in that situation are at a significant disadvantage statistically. So right, should right. I acknowledge that? I think that that is not the type of question you should ask a child unless you are somebody who's a confidant. But asking what someone's preferred pronoun is, is something you should ask everyone and can ask everyone. Okay. Or the other way is, you know, make it your issue to share what pronoun you want to be called if it's important to you. And if someone's uncomfortable, then say it anyway, because then you're putting the power in that person you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like other, uh, I, I, I just I don't. To, I have to disagree because I've been in, I live in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I live in an LGBTQ household. Yeah. I worked at a yoga studio that was uh, a very queer yoga studio where people came and it was mandatory in that yoga studio. When you introduce yourself and went around the circle, you can say your name. And if you want your preferred pronoun, that was part of it to build an mm-hmm. inclusive place. And so I've been outside of that. I've been inside of that. You know, in my teacher trainings, we don't really do it. It is something that's uncomfortable. And I see well, it's going to be inclusive out. to people that are interested in that. And people are going to feel judged if they're not interested in that. Yeah, but everybody should be interested in the well-being of other people. Of course. Absolutely. Like, so if you're not interested in it, it's either you haven't heard about it or it's because you actually don't care. I, I don't think so. I don't care. I mean, you can, you can call me whatever pronoun you want. I, I, I relate to myself as, is, is he and him, but I'm not going to be like offended if you don't ask me what my preferred pronoun is. Right. But if somebody misgendered you all the time and they called you, and then I would say, then I would say something are. about, it. I'd say, please don't call me that. Please call me she, her, or they, them. Okay. The point and, is and that I wouldn't be friends with someone that was going to constantly deny my reality. Yeah, but it's like not just friends. It's like grocery store, bank. Imagine if in one day you were misgendered by 30 different people. It'd be horrible. It's horrible. A horrible experience. That's why people take hormones. That's why people wear the clothes. That's why, that's the whole point is like- I I agree with, I agree with all of that. It's just, I I think it shouldn't be like the, the way to create inclusivity is through like the voluntary interactions, through sharing through not judging people who, who are not going to be that way. I just think that sometimes we get almost like vitriolic. You know, I had a, a former Landmark Forum honor, uh, leader on, you know, where he said every social movement ends up turning into a racket. And well, that's what my book's about. It's because we go too far, right? We, we overcorrect. I do agree with that. I think there's an overcorrection. Yes, I'm all in the spirit of, you know, as long as you're not harming anyone, However you want to live your life, as long as you're not impeding on that same right of someone else, I, I honor that as your right. And, you know, whether you identify as a woman or a man or anything in between, that's your right. And, and that's also, it's my right to respect it or not respect it. I would choose to respect it. But if someone chooses not to respect it, 
they don't have to associate with that person. They have to walk on the sidewalk. They have to go to the deli. They So you're mm-hmm. actually not right. And the reason why you being an, an ally matters is because of how much... You can imagine having those difficult interactions over and over and over and over again. And, and then just like the type of grief that would cause and anger. Mm-hmm. So I know what you're saying. Like, it's not everybody's job, but I wish it kind of was. If you see somebody... Just try to use non-gendered words then. Like, why do you have to call someone sir or ma'am? I think that's really antiquated. So like, just for an example from my work, I call the kid, the kids I work with my friends. Like my friends, it's time to take a seat. Mm-hmm. And that is a non-gendered word. In the Spanish language, like, you know, I, knew, I do Spanish immersion programming. We do like, instead of a OS or AS, they end things in an X, which is a gender neutral way to say things like Latinx mm-hmm. instead of Latino or Latina. So finding a, a, gen, a way that is non-gendered not making assumptions of a gender in either direction, more words and terms we can create that don't automatically say, this is who we say you are. That's actually better than having to have everybody say, oh, this is my gender. But because we do have language, you know, I'm a a linguist, right? We Mm -hmm. do have language that says a lot about a person. It genders Mm -hmm. them. While we have that in our active language, we need to be as careful as we can not to misgender people. And that is a responsibility we all have. I truly believe it is. Yeah. And on the flip side, if someone calls you sir and you don't identify them, they're not being transphobic. They're being polite and they didn't know that you identify a different way. And you can correct them. They could be being polite. But if somebody's wearing a dress that you think has a penis and you call that person sir. Well, I'm not going to call that person sir. <laughs> different. You'd if you're be wearing- surprised. I'm married to a dress. So. I'm not, but I'm not surprised. I mean, so again, this is the difference. If I was wearing a dress, right, I don't have my dick sticking out. Well, first of all, I would imagine not being trans that I probably would try to cover my dick from sticking out. There's, I would imagine there's, right, maybe are there other kinds of underwear or boxers that can kind of conceal that if you choose not to get surgery? Yeah, I mean. Maybe, like maybe I just don't want a boner sticking out if I'm wearing a dress, right? But right. then if someone's calling me sir, even though I'm clearly expressing myself as a woman, clearly there's a, there's a disrespect to that's what expression. happens every day. That's what, that's what the person I'm married to lives every single day. That's not what I'm talking about though. I'm talking about, you look like a girl, you're dressing like a girl. And I say, ma'am, to be polite. And you don't identify internally as a woman. That's not me being a dick. That's just me. I agree. I definitely agree with that. And that's I think- what, that's all I'm talking about. I'm not, I'm not trying to get like too in the weeds on this. this is a lot of this to me is common sense. You know, I, yeah, it is common sense, but you'd just be surprised how most, Laura, most people it is are not transphobic. Most people are not going to be a dick to your expression. They're the loudest voices. Like I don't go, I've, I don't really go around talking about this because to me, if you express yourself as a woman, I'll call you she or her and I'll call you by the name you want to be called. And if you were, you know, born Raphael and you want to be named Raquel, I'll call you fucking Raquel. I'll call you whatever the hell you want me to call you. If you wanted me to call you, you know, AC3 hashtag i'd call you ac3 hashtag like i don't give a shit if it makes you feel respected i'll call you that i think most people are like that it's kind of like you know the race conversation right it's like is there clearly systemic racism absolutely is there a ton of amazing work going on in race relations right race relations right now yes are most people hating black people no the kkk has like six thousand members Oh, really? I didn't know it was that low. It's pretty low and it's shrinking every year. So like most people aren't outright, I hate black people and the white superior race. Most people are not operating like that. 
That doesn't but mean they, that they there's not racial. Inconvenience. But like you said, you're like, oh, it's an inconvenience to others to have to change the language. That feeling of inconvenience. Well, no, 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 no. That's not what I said. It's I'm personally, if you look like a, a, a woman, which you do look like a woman and you, your name is a woman's name. I'm going to just assume that you're expressing yourself as a woman. And if you're like, Eric, no, actually identify as a uh, very feminine man. And I like to have a woman's name. Then I respect that. So what if it's somebody who's actually common sense? Well, here's the thing is there's a lot of people who, who fall between the genders as well that might express in the middle. So then asking mm-hmm. that pronoun is, is, is a kind thing to do. We could drop it after that, but I just think leading with kindness because people who are marginalized have hard lives and taken for sure, for sure, for sure. But if you also, again, I want people to feel as empowered as possible in their lives and to deny an existing reality. If you kind of look like a guy or kind of look like a girl, most people are going to call you by the pronoun that they think you are. And to get annoyed at every single person that doesn't call you they or them you're going to go crazy. I mean, it's going to be a horrible existence. So if you inform people that you know, call me, they, them, and don't take it personally when they don't, you're going to have a much better life than being, you know, people complaining. I mean, I get called racist and homophobic all the time because I'm a libertarian, you know, ANCAP, whatever you want to call me. I get nasty names around me all the time. I, I know it's not personal. I know they have certain associations with that. So there's always going to be now, I'm, now it's not at the level of, of being trans, by, like, by no means that. But I think that's a given. Most people, not everyone, there's certainly people who are very, very devout Christians who won't call someone by their pronoun. They're, they're fucking idiots. They're, they're assholes. It's, it's not because they're Christian. It's because they're jerks. And I know plenty of Christians that don't give a shit about this and they'll call people by whatever pronoun they want. Right. Most people. So, so and this is something that the Internet has just fucked up for people. The vast majority of the population are normal, generally nice, respectful people who are going to respect people's you know, choices. There's going to be a very tiny percentage of people who are going to be like, I hate trans people or a less version of that is I'm not going to call you by your pronoun, except their voices. If you were to think you would think that's like 50% of the population. If you went on Facebook with people having right. arguments about this stuff. I don't have arguments on this because to me, it's not a big deal. If you want to be called whatever, I'll call you whatever. And, and no one that I know hates trans people. And every single person I associate with would have tremendous kindness and respect and loving care for someone that really felt they should be in a different body. And I think most people are in that boat, just like most people don't hate black people. And most people are not anti-Semitic. Um, yeah, no, I agree with that. I think yeah. you're right. I think that unfortunately the fringe opinions get the most clicks and propagate and it is like they do and and to start reacting to the fringe opinions only gives them more power i agree the more you engage with it the more it spreads it's a virus well Um, right and then this this is the thing if you look at organizations right you know going back to political correctness companies now are so afraid to have people express themselves because they're so afraid of some one whack job Who's going to think everyone in the company hates them because they're black or everyone in the company hates them because they're gay or whatever it is. You know, you talk to any you know, large business owner and the amount of frivolous lawsuits that they have to deal with because you have one person making a claim, even though it's clearly bullshit. The fact is you make a claim, you now have to go to court, settle. Even if the judge throws it out, you had to pay all the, the fines and the time to deal with that. Most come, oh, I don't know about most, but a lot of companies 
the way they avoid it is they have all these you know strict rules now what you can't say don't offend people and everyone's afraid now to express themselves openly because if i you know say the wrong thing then i'm going to offend you and then i'm going to get canceled right look there's going to be someone listening to this that's going to think oh i'm transphobic guaranteed someone's going to listen to this and their takeaway is going to be eric schlein's transphobic now obviously i'm not transphobic but this is where our society has come to is the fact i'm trying to have an an interesting conversation, not actually press back a little bit and not to invalidate what you're saying, but just to take it a little deeper and to tease it I out. I don't feel validated by anything you said. I, f- I feel like you're a pretty good listener. Thank um, you. Quest- some of your questions were, I can tell you haven't been exposed to this. No, I'm a dumbass on this topic. This is not my expertise. I'm, I'm asking as a late. Have, um, the more you learn about it, the better. In conversations like this, is an access to learn about it as opposed to people throwing vitriol on Facebook to each other. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about. So I am now, I keep it totally separate from my personal and professional life, but I have a poetry Instagram and I go live with other poets and all ages, all backgrounds, all different countries, all skin colors. And the coolest thing is we talk about race. We all have poems about our experience with race. That's awesome. I had the coolest open mic last week. I was just like hosting people. And I just, I just started doing this, like, I don't know, a month or two ago, literally brand new. And basically the cool thing is we are all sharing our perspective on like what's happening with race through our Mm -hmm. poems. And so we started the coolest conversations. And I had like an older black gentleman say like, I'm so happy to hear you critiquing and asking these questions in your poetry. And then he shared a whole bunch of poems on race with like historical facts about the black experience. And then, you know, we had like a Latinx come on talking about different things that they had experienced through their art and art doesn't lie. Art is your subjective point of view. And that's the most beautiful thing because every like during the live, everyone's messaging, like there's like a live stream of like uh, comments. And it was mm-hmm. like, everybody felt so grateful that we were all just thinking about it, talking about it and sharing about it. So the opposite of that garbage uh, media fringe news is actually relating to people. And I think doing it through art is so cool. And I'm very excited to be doing that on this poetry board. And I've been sharing my uh, sci-fi with friends too. And it's like, it's prodding into the gender questions. It's prodding into race. It's prodding into elitism. It's prodding into capitalists. Like what happens when the ultra, ultra, ultra rich ruin the planet and actually are able to leave on a rocket and be like, bye, you know? So that's where I am excited is like art is such a good container for all these conversations because somebody's art is their reality. Mm-hmm. Such a cool thing to learn about people that way. So if anybody's out there listening, go and look at the poets on Instagram and watch their live streams and hear their words. Yeah. I think though it's important to note it's their reality. Where where it gets frustrating is when someone's reality ends up gotten so bad in our culture, there's certain things you now can't say or can't talk about because, well, I'm going to be open and non-judgmental as long as your conversation fits into my point of view, fits into my reality. So we'll, we'll honor your reality as long as it's within our reality. You know, like for instance, you bring up like capitalism and stuff, right? Like I'd say capitalism is probably the greatest 
you know, humanitarian force the world has ever seen, not even by a little, but by a long shot. And, and that's something you would know way more about than me because you know, right, I'm not, I would say I'm not just like a guy in the diner talking about that. I'm not a dumbass when it comes to that. I and agree. you're around people, you know, you've done this conference for 15 years. What's the conference you do with all the, with the rich old dude? Uh, where, oh, Berkshire Hathaway meaning? Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. When you say rich old dude, there's, there's a lot of young people there too. And people want to learn about investing as well. And yeah. there's an African-American on the Kenshin Alts on the board of the company. I think sometimes we now say rich old dudes like an insult when there's a lot of rich old dudes that have created a ton of value in society, which is why they're rich. Well, I do agree that there are benefits of capitalism, like the tax money going to build the roads. And that's not a, that's not capitalism though. What you're, what you're saying is not capitalism, tax money going to roads, taxation is force. You're not consenting to be taxed. It's a form of theft. It's going to roads where Brookfield Asset Management could build those roads significantly better, cheaper, and with much better technology. So roads is one of the few things in this country that is not capitalistic. It's, oh, a mono- it's, it's actually a monopoly. Governments control most of the roads. And, and if I want to start right. a road company, I can't compete with the government, even though I might have a better technology and I could certainly do it cheaper. Do you know what level I get taxed at? And you know, I'm not making millions of dollars. 44% because I live in New York City. And we have huge programs and, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a a bleeding heart liberal. So I believe in the free lunch and all that stuff. The problem is it's your identity. The thing is, I don't have a political identity. And I think you would find that most people who come into the libertarian libertarian. because it's, that's the only way to socially express it. But most people who are, who are libertarian say, I hate that word saying you are this way is most people in my experience, who are libertarians, it's not their identity libertarian. It's where they've come to by constantly looking to invalidate the truth and constantly break old conclusions. You know, socially, I'm a bleeding heart liberal, but I also have studied, you know, economics and and Ludwig von Mises and Hayek. And you'd find that most libertarians only got that way through extensive reading. It wasn't like, because a lot of what I would say sounds really uncomfortable, sounds counterintuitive. It is not, it's, I would say is not intuitive to just being born to the culture and saying, well, I care about, if I care about the environment, it means that I'm a Democrat. But if I say, let's, let's pollute because I want to make a lot of money, then I'm a Republican. Like, yeah, and people, those are the, that's, that's, that's the same media feedback loop that isn't really reality. Right. But I'm saying like, when I was a kid, I was like, okay, if you support you know, low taxes just to help the rich people and hurt the poor and the middle class, then you're a Republican. But if you care about people and you're more humanitarian, then you're a Democrat. So I was a Democrat because I care about people. So, but then- I think that's my problem too, is I listen to leftist leaning news, but I really do feel- You see, I I listen to leftist leaning news more than I listen to right-wing news because I find that listening to stuff that is now different from my- point of view only strengthens any argument. So if I turn one example, uh, yeah, I I will. But before I do that, I can break so many arguments on TV because it's like, you know, you've studied like yoga, right? It's a lot. Yeah. A lot. So there's probably things you understand about yoga 
then a lay person would ask you a question and you'd be like, well, 10 years ago, I would have wondered about that, but I've moved through so many spaces since. Right. Yeah. 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 Or sorry, you know, or, you know, I think maybe a better example would be like self-awareness, right? Like when someone has the discovery that they're not their thoughts and that's a major revelation to them, right? So, or it's like, okay, you know what? If I say I am sad, that's completely inauthentic because who I am is being sad and I'm not being responsible for my way of being. But that's a different space than having the awareness of a feeling called sadness, which right. if you live in Japan where you're very disconnected from your feelings, having a feeling and noticing a feeling is a big deal in Japan. I'm about to do a mindfulness workshop with the Japanese Department of Ed, January 15th. And so in the translation process, so I had- They're going to have a tough, tougher time. Well, don't worry, because I actually- I'm not, I'm not worried with you. I think you'll do a great job. I'm going to do great. You know why? <laughs> why? I have got That's a great true. team because I have a Japanese American friend who's lived here for 10 years. The Japanese uh, person who put it, is putting it on is a, is a yogi. And then we had a translator who understands both cultures. Mm-hmm. So we're curating. It's a problem. Like even the Japanese culture being that way, it's problematic because people are so repressed mm-hmm. that- there's like just the same behavioral and emo- social emotional ills are happening there. They come out in different ways. So we might not be able to talk about social emotional <laughs> learning the way we do here in the US, but nonetheless, we're going to enter through the lens of awareness and just right. watch, you know, right. and it's right. so yeah, like, there's certain conversations you won't be able to have until they're aware of certain things first. Right. Well, we're keeping it super basic because remember, this is for K through 12. So anyway, that's that's my that's my point is. I would say from the average liberal, they'll say things and it's like, okay, you've moved through almost no spaces because it's, it's not like you're have harmful intentions. It's good intentions, but it's like, there's been very little thinking done around that because if the thinking had been done, like, you know, Jonathan Haidt's a great example of this, you know, have you ever read his, uh, what was the book? Oh, the right. It was called the righteous mind. Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. Awesome book. He's a, well, you've read it. No, not yet. Oh, yeah, okay. So he started as a liberal professor and he talks about how he became more libertarian after writing the book because it forced him to examine things. So in my anecdotal experience, I've never done a study on this. So this is just purely anecdotal. Libertarianism often just comes from doing the thinking and getting outside of the dogma. And then what you naturally arrive to, what you naturally discover is what we in the culture would call being a libertarian. There's probably people who have a libertarian identity, but they're just as much of a dumbass as someone who's like, raw, raw America, you know, and I love George Bush or, you know, Obama's my savior and I'm going to faint. And, you know, he just loves helping all the people. Like anything you make your identity, it cabbages the mind, as Charlie Munger would say it it literally turns the mind to mush because now instead of discovery process, you've now right. made it your religion and you're right. going to only look for evidence to fit into your tr- tribal identity. Right. And most I do of, understand most of my point. friends are liberals, by the way, I, I get along with liberals way more than the average conservative, you know, but no, I know that you do. I think like the only reason I identify as a liberal, maybe the way you identify as a libertarian is because it's the closest thing that would describe my social... No, but I would say liberals really harm people. They do really massive destruction for humanity. And in some ways, to me, more disgusting than like some Republicans, because I feel like some Republicans just blatantly don't give a shit about certain things, where I find most liberals are very well-intentioned and very caring people, 
but it's, it would be kind of like this. I am an engineer. I'm going to build an airplane and I really, really care about airplanes flying, but I have a belief system about how to build an engine and my belief system causes airplanes to crash. And then every every time the airplane crashes, what I say is, well, it was because we didn't build it well enough. Next time we have to spend more money to build an engine even bigger doing this thing because we didn't spend enough resources on this. So the next time it crashes, then we go, look, the evil airplane flying people, we need to make it bigger next time. So then a hundred years go by, the engines are a hundred times the size, but the airplane keeps crashing. And what they never understand is their basic model for how to build an engine is wrong. Right. Now I've heard this because that's like my dad's viewpoint is, he understands why liberals care, but he's mm-hmm. just questions that the systems will never work and can't put a dollar sign on something that is a broken idea. And has like I've heard him say things like liberals hate black people because they want to keep the social, you know, like if you if basically like if you keep like uh, where you get money, if you're if you're on like if you, this, oh, this, you, this, you get like certain benefits for, for certain benefits, right? He thinks that those, those should be wiped. Well, let, let, but forget that for a second. Like you said, well, you give me an example. Okay, tell me something that you're kind of passionate about that's a liberal issue. Racial equity. Okay, not that because that's way too nuanced. Let's like I'm talking about like that was like probably the worst example you could pick because I might agree with you actually with a lot of that. I too, mean, I so. just I that's a big thing for me because I'm an educator and I live in New York City and my students. Yeah, so I would say a lot of the racial equity conversation is a social issue it has nothing to do with the government. Right, but and, the government and, and, is involved in it because of the. Yes. Okay. So any anywhere where there's systemic racism, you should get rid of, of the government, right? Like I'm okay, against. What about just this? What about just like the libraries as a as a social service? Oh well, so so this is one of these things. That's something I great. think is wonderful. I like paying tax dollars to keep per- libraries. Okay, open. great. This is horrible and perfect because I think. Let me give li- you like a little bit of liberal liberal background so people understand why this is liberal before you take over. Okay, so a library is publicly funded. Mm-hmm. Anyone can use it for free. Most people know that. You can get you if you go in the New York City Library, like unhoused people are there. Parents that don't have jobs are there with their small children. Right? There's a lot of free programming. It yeah. is like the ultimate liberal hub. No, as far as so I'm wonderful. So it's probably an issue that I would be least passionate about. And the reason I'm least passionate about libraries is if the most important thing we were now dealing with was, should we privatize libraries? We're in such good shape. It's ridiculous. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like, I always tell people, there's actually books you can read on road privatization. It's not interesting to me because if we're talking about privatizing the roads, it's like, we've come so far. And and I don't think we're in a structure where there's even a space to have that conversation. So like the chances that we're going to privatize all the libraries is zero. And it's just not going to happen when there's a million other stuff to deal with. And it's just Why like, would anybody build a library if it wasn't publicly funded? They would, well, they would not exist because not, oh, so, so, in Central America and that libraries are not free and they're very limited in content. Yeah. But you'd have to see the context to where, to how they're built and what regulations are there. So I, I can't speak to that. I'm a moron when it comes to, to those, because that's the other thing without an understanding of the economic environment, you can make, improper conclusions from what some other country is doing. So I don't know anything about that. So hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. Look in the United States when it comes to, if you, if you, if any of you find, um, so John was a, yeah, John Stossel did a whole episode once on Fox business and it was on 
the privatization of like parks. And he showed that in the United States, when towns privatize their park, you know, the big fear was like, they'd get really expensive. And like, this is a government thing. What ended up happening was the parks became like beyond beautiful, very innovative, like working water, like everything just became a lot better. And people were happy to pay whatever they paid for. I don't remember if that was the exact thing. Did people but, use but, it for free if they didn't have money? Okay, but okay, hold on a second. Wait, but could could anybody access the park? Is the question. I, I don't even. I don't remember. I. I, I that's I, the thing that you have to worry about. Is no, it's not what you have to worry about. There would be no, no. It's not what you have to worry about. See, this is like saying, you know, if I went to North Korea and I said, "Hey, guys, you don't need to regulate the price of food." Well, what if someone can't afford broccoli because it's going to go to a million dollars a pound and only the rich people can afford broccoli? It's the same logic. Will there be some people? It's not though, because I live in New York City where people don't have backyards and that's they're true. poor. Okay, that's yeah, true. If they cannot go to the park for free, mm-hmm. they lose all access to green land, green spaces. Okay. So number one, they can move if they really want green spaces. That's the first thing. We live in a big country with a lot of green spaces. You can move to that Nebraska. A, that saying that somebody who's poor can move is a really dumb statement. Why? Somebody who's poor can't move. Really? Right? Why? They're in a rent-controlled apartment. Mm-hmm. Maybe because they have a criminal record and can't get a right, which is a government once, issue. Once you're in the system, once a, you're which poor, is a government issue, you're trapped. Which is trapped. a government? Which is a government issue? I agree. I agree. I, right. uh, prison is my biggest. Like in my book, I, I attack prisons. I think prison is a complete. I mean, some people are unsafe and need to be locked away. The vast that's majority. That is a, that's a whole other conversation. But I generally agree with that too. All I'm saying with libraries, you could fund them. You, you would have, again, this is to me, it's stupid because libraries are like, I'm, whatever, it's like a library. But generally with libraries, if you were to privatize all libraries, there would be enormous demand for libraries because there is. Most people would use it. There would be much better technology. It would be a lot, a lot of it would be online, I'm sure now. Um, it is and, online. You can get everything online on the library. Well, at least from New York City. From New York City, but they're, they're a really well-run one. Not all of them have the same access to those resources. And capital will be allocated appropriately. So, you know, some would get bigger, some would get smaller. And there'd be other business models. So there'd be library business models that get created that we don't even have access to right now because there's no competition. If I want to start a library, I can't compete because they're free. So there's no innovation around library systems, or at least less. So I don't know what that looks like. But you would have a pretty affordable system and it would be, it would work a lot better. And I don't know what that looks like, but it's the same thing. Look, we have newspapers, right? Which are private. And if you're poor, you can still get a newspaper. There's still ways to get it. There's charities that give out newspapers. So I would imagine there would be charities that would say, hey, look, if you can't afford a library card, we'll give you one for free. And you could support a charity that does that. So in a system that allows for competition and innovation, are there still going to be people that can't afford some product or good or service? Absolutely. Except charities could actually fill that gap where what happened in 1913 is when the government took over the welfare system and the charity system, more people went into poverty. And then there was less capital well, available. Was word I couldn't remember. That was the word I... My yeah, brain but there was, and there was less capital for the community pools, for the charities. A lot of that went away uh, after yeah. 1913. So... And statistically, what they've shown is rich people are very generous and donate a lot of their money, you know, which is another myth that I feel like some liberals were around. Well, the rich people just don't donate. It's like, that's not true at all. Well, it's a middle class that donates less. Poor and the rich donate a large, 
in larger proportion than the middle class. That's that, that's true. So yeah. anyway, that, that's an example of libraries, but like there's so many other ones, like minimum wage is an example, right? Like, you know, in my perfect world, the best thing for people who are poor or people who say are unskilled workers, maybe they're just coming into this country, give the best system you could give them is a $0 minimum wage, no minimum wage, because then they would get price equilibrium, which means that they would have faster upward mobility. They would have less unemployment. And if you're 17 years old and you're packing boxes and you're getting the same salary as someone at the cash register, even though it's a somewhat more skilled position, you don't have those price imbalances. And the other problem is it allows you to hire more people because you can pay them a real wage and companies can be competitive towards wages. And it really only ends up mattering for lower skilled workers, people just coming into the workforce. You don't stay at that wage. So, you know, if I'm getting paid $12 an hour to do um, pizza boxes in high school, I'm probably getting artificially overpaid for my time. You know, maybe I only do a few hours a, a day after school and I get paid $4 an hour and I'm content with that, which then allows for the cashier to get $13 an hour or the burger flipper to get a little bit more. And then you move up and you can, and you can get paid more. So, and there's so much statistics out there that shows that the higher you make the minimum wage, the larger unemployment becomes, right? I mean, you could literally say, well, minimum wage is so great. Let's just right, give every... I mean, like if I had to pay, I'm an employee, right? I'm an employer. And I mean, I pay everyone higher than what the federal minimum wage would become anyways. But I know that if I, if I had like a daycare, for example, and I suddenly had to pay everyone $5 per hour more, I would go out of business. Well, no, you'd have to just raise your prices. Right. And then... See, so, what, so what ends up happening... And now who's going to get hurt the most? A poor single mother who needs to do daycare. Now her costs go up. Right. So daycare is very expensive. (laughs) One of my business, I mean, Kira, I mean, she, she has to do daycare. And when you raise minimum wages and then less people can afford, it's not wealthy people that can't afford, they'll pay whatever. And it's not like the CEO gets a pay cut. The CEO will still get what he gets paid. When you increase minimum wage, it, significantly as a proportion of the population impacts poor people because it gives them either more unemployment or, or less affordable goods and services. Yeah, I understand how the ideology of liberals doesn't match the economic reality and how there's been a lot of overcorrection. Well, it does sometimes, but it doesn't always. Right. You know, when, when you're to say, and the, look, and the drug war is a good thing. When you remove a ban on goods or services, it takes it out of the black market Right. And now, now I would say, don't let the government regulate it either. Let the companies regulate it. That might be a difference between a libertarian and a liberal, where liberals want to just get as much tax money from those things as possible, which then actually keeps it more in the black market again. I actually just heard that on another podcast. They were talking about, oh, that, that weed was legal. And then the person said, yeah, but I still get it from my guy because it's cheaper than the yeah, tax. There, there, there you go. Ex- exactly. So, but look, I'm all for legalizing all drugs, heroin, you know, they did that in Portugal and it worked really well. Well, they decriminalized it and it worked really well. Yeah. Worked really well. Now you did see there was a temporary spike and increase in drug use and then it plummeted and people aren't going to, you know, jail and having their lives ruined over it. The thing too, in like the war on drugs is some of these drugs only exist because drugs are illegal. So you start making these really cheap concoctions about things. How how did you get into doing like the tea? Do you mind if we like, get away from the political stuff first. Yeah, no, for I would love that. Right. I would love that because I'm very I just, passionate. I just, and I, I just, I love talking about this stuff. I just don't want this to be a nine hour show. Cause I, I, there's like, there's, there's so Let's much to eight and a half. <laughs> yeah, literally. Right. I feel like the way now, again, talking to someone who doesn't know a lot about yoga, doesn't do 
teacher trainings. When I talk to you, it's like, it makes sense. I talk to some other people and it seems like way more like robotic and how they do things. I feel like you've tapped into something with like the children's yoga and the teacher training that like most people aren't doing. I mean, is that kind of right? Oh yeah. I mean, cause like, I just have such a particular lens that is rooted in like reality. So, so tell, tell, tell me more about that. Like how, how did you develop this? How do you feel this is like what you do is different than sort of your standard children's yoga teacher training, all that. So your standard yoga teacher training right now during COVID is set it and forget it model. Like you meet an hour a week live and then the rest is just somebody recorded a thing and you watch it. And it's like the whole thing about this work is we are creating a lifelong skill set with these children that is directly relevant to them because of who they are and what they're doing right now. No pre-recorded video can do that. Right? We have to get the people in the training to recognize the individuals in front of them and come off autopilot. Yeah. You can achieve that by watching a show. Because it's, it's a form of coaching, right? When you're working. It's, a, it, it's coaching and mentorship. So I'm actually mentoring people for three and a half. This is months. why, I mean, this is why I've, I've hated so many yoga teachers. Like I always get nervous to like go to like a new yoga class or something because like 80% of the time when I've done a yoga, maybe more, 90% of the time when I've taken a yoga class, I literally feel like they're just giving me this like copy and paste, like, you know, I'm talking about in person, but I always, I almost always feel like here's the position we do now, we're going to do it. And there's very little, like, I don't even know why I'm doing this. There's no like principles behind it. When they're like oming, I just feel like they're just like have some like woo woo hippie identity. They don't even fucking understand why they're oming. Like I I don't feel connected to yoga. I feel like I'm just doing like a stretching workout that I kind of like watch on a, a fitness show. That's a problem in the West. Westernized yoga is problematic for very many reasons. And the one you just named is because Western people are looking for a product that will maximize their productivity. Mm-hmm. So when you go to a class, you want to get the most workout and you know create the vibe of spirituality without actually having a spiritual experience. Yeah, I, I have never had a spiritual experience in yoga. And most of these yoga teachers, I think, are fucking idiots. Yeah, I think that a lot, unfortunately had a spiritual experience, but weren't actually led into being able to do that because in 200 hours, you could never learn that. Hmm. This is a life path and a life process. Like it is a lifelong study. It's not something you can achieve in eight weekends. I'm sorry. Well, it's like people who have like life coach certifications online or something. They do like an eight week course, another a life coach. So here's the damage that happens in a yoga classroom. And this is how I'm trying to correct it. We cannot teach 40 people the same way. When you learn yoga philosophy, Mm -hmm. you're actually learning about how to look at people and assess those people and assess their needs. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give like too much yoga philosophy terminology. No, you can, you can do it. Just just tell us what you mean. Different constitutions, the way you're made up, the way you function, the way your body is. Are you large, medium, small? Are you fast? Are you slow? What are your habituated patterns? If you were, if you were a sports coach, I mean, you would look at all that stuff too. Exactly. When I work with students, I give a very personalized experience. And if this kid needs to move slow because they're like untethered and need to be grounded and this kid needs to move fast, I'm going to try to make sure they both understand and are empowered to know what to discern for themselves. Yeah. How does that child learn to look inward and understand what their need is in that moment? I think Mm -hmm. like we can help kids facilitate that, but most adults have no clue what they're 
inner experiences. These people who've meditated once with a yoga certificate should not be allowed to teach. But the problem is that it became, I know you don't like regulation, but it's an unregulated. No, no, no. I love regulation. I just don't want bureaucrats doing the regulating where it gets politicized. We are unregulated. So there's no 101, 102. There's no like this comes first. Mm -hmm. Every yoga teacher training is not led by an educator. Mm-hmm. led by a yoga person. And some of them are not educated beyond yoga. Yep. And some of the people were educated in yoga by uneducated people. Mm-hmm. So you can see the problem that creates. So business opportunity create a standardization. We need a standardization, but in the yoga philosophy part. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Business opportunity. In that yoga philosophy piece, uh-huh. you actually have your first spiritual experiences because you begin to understand the framework. Well, what I'm saying is you start a company where your only job is to give third party a seal of approval to yoga studios that it does. But it's not a regulator. It is like a, I don't even want to get into that conversation, but I finally bought into that organization and got my schools of registered children's yoga school through the yoga Alliance. They're like the closest thing we have to a governing body and the standards are high, but they're not high enough. Because So, so, so you should start one. You start, start a governing body. That's not my calling though. My calling don't, but, but, My but calling is, I got hired to write this mindfulness book and I'm going to throw these empowering sure. well, retreats great. people. I'm going to be bringing people who need leadership, who need to look inside, who never learned this out of their shell, out of their blindness and into mm-hmm. themselves and into the path of healing. And that's what I want to do. And so having this mindfulness book for lay people fall into my lap is like the biggest opportunity. Cause what I've learned in my teacher training is people come to me, not just for the professional development. They're coming for personal development. They're coming to deepen their personal practice and they leave and they're like, I'm meditating every day. I've got a teacher, you know, they're, and yeah, so see, that's like, cool. That's how it should be. They're changing themselves. Right. And that's the other thing is yoga teacher trainings for kids, t- kids, yoga teacher training don't require you to change yourself. Mm-hmm. My entire training begins with who are you? What is your practice? What is it missing? And what do you need? And that's, that's like where we start day one is going inside and being real. Like, what am I really, do I know anything about yoga? Right. Cause most of them, when we got to yoga philosophy, which is our very final course, mm-hmm. still don't know these basics and they that's have been through teacher training. Wild, right? That's why it is wild, right? I actually leave it as the final class because we learn all the concepts and stuff. And then we arrive and I'm like, see in the yoga philosophy, and they can find their grounding there and they can find their yeah. future there. And it, it just blows them open. Yeah. And it's so exciting. And I'm getting like text messages all day today. Like I'm so excited about what we were tapping into. So that's what I'm excited about. I feel like I'm calling the, the universe was like, here's this book deal and the book deal. I'm just going to start to throw retreats. I'm going to have like you and Kira are doing yeah. just tribal leadership, helping people see themselves, question your assumptions, get inside, get quiet, breathe and be together and just feel that they are held in community, feel that they are cared for and genuinely be cared for. That's what I want to do. That's That's awesome. Can you give an example of something that like you would share, teach someone that someone who's a yoga professional and there's some aspect of yoga philosophy that you would teach them that just never got in with them. And it's like, you know, really impactful for them in their practice and and the way they teach others. There's this basic concept of, you know how we're always thinking about alignment in yoga and they're like, oh no, pull your 
your ribs in and this and that. And it feels nitpicky and most people like don't know why they're doing it, but they're asking you to tilt your pelvis and all this stuff. So at the root of that. Or like just, well, I mean, it just sounds like they just want you to sit up straight. Well, they do. Yeah. Because so there is what they call is the Sushumna Nadi. It's a main channel that goes th- through the center. It's basically where your spine is. It's the central axis of your body, but it's not the literal spine. It is an energetic channel. And I'm sure you've seen the depictions of the chakras, these circles mm-hmm. down. Actually, my necklace is the chakras. So the chakras fall along the energetic, this energetic. So hold, on, hold on, hold on. Because I could just see where this is off the rails in a second. So how do you know there's an energetic channel that comes through you? Like I, I get, I get through a felt experience. And is there a way to measure you actually feel an experience when you have a proper practice? Okay. It's not something. Do we, do we, do we know like, but do we now this doesn't matter. This is just my own curiosity. Do we know how that works? Like, do we know what biological mechanism that is? Can you, can you measure it somehow? You actually find biological mechanisms connected to all of the the, like sensations and energetic things that yogis have been identifying. There's something to it. It's like, you've been doing like a thousand years and a lot of smart people are like, yeah, when my heart chakra opens up and then this happens, like, and I think my impression is these are ways to describe things we don't fully understand. So this is the best model we exactly. have. Exactly. But the thing about it is because it's energetic, it's a felt experience that yeah. is not, but actually some people can visualize the chakra. Like, so let's just come back. Okay. So yeah. there's a central channel from your root through the crown of your head. I love how she goes, we're going to, we can visualize chakras, but we're not going to talk about that. Let's go back. No, I'm just saying like some people can actually see the things let's that say how some people can see auras. Exactly. It's Some like, people can actually fuck? see them, but let's not, let's not even go there. Let's yeah. just imagine all invisible. Okay. Yeah. Central channel from the root of you into the center of the earth, all the way through your center from the crown of your head into the infinite and beyond, right? This tunnel, right? This channel open. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want to call it. When you're misaligned, think about like how water would flow through that channel. It's just not as effective, mm-hmm. right? So when you spray a hose and you put your thumb over it, you get that nice pressure. Imagine that that channel allows like a nice flow. No, it makes sense. I, but I think these are all analogies to describe something we don't fully still understand. Agreed. And we yeah. don't fully understand it, but we have a felt experience. Yeah. And you, and you sort of have models to distinguish those felt. Yes. Yeah, so that's called the Sushumna Nadi. Okay. And then through each of those chakras. So there's like a, the cent from the crown center of your forehead, throat, heart, solar plexus, sacrum, and your perineum, like the, your root, mm-hmm. there's an Ida and Pingala. These are these, like, it's almost like two snakes that cross. Okay. And these are also two other, they're not the central channel, but they're two other main channels where energy travels and they travel through these energy circles. And you can feel two different channels through you as well. As right now I cannot because I am drinking caffeine all the time you become a much more sensitive and attuned instrument. The more you practice and the quieter you get, the better you teach. But I mean, you, you practice more than 99.9% of people on the planet. But my daily practice is insignificant. I used to practice 90 minutes a day. I used to do just the physical and breathing. And I would also do reading every day, you know, so your lifestyle dictates how much you can be attuned to your instrument. That makes total sense. Time and energy is so important. When you turn off the screen, when you close your mouth and when you close your eyes, the stuff that can take place, right? So mm-hmm. the more often you get quiet, you can observe more. 
right? Like, like think about when you're doing mindful listening for somebody in one of your trainings and you're quiet mm-hmm. and all the things that happen for that person can happen for you inwardly when you listen to yourself mm-hmm. and you can also experience the flow of energy and you can feel when it's not moving. Yes, for sure. You feel what's stuck. And I have no idea scientifically what that's about, but it's certainly a real experience. It's, this is actually scientifically proven because like, it's the same thing as the meridians. If you've ever had acupuncture or, or Chinese medicine, there are energetic centers in your body. Some of it's like, we're no, it's really, it's really cool. No. Yeah. So when you become attuned, when you can feel and sense what's inside, it's like the greatest gift in the entire world. And then even, so even though my practice is not what it has been, I'm still benefiting from that to this day. Yeah. And if you can imagine your energy making you efficient, right? You can put all of your energy towards something because you can be extremely focused. And I know you get that more than most people. The yogis do that. They do that with, because you said at the beginning of this call, like, how are you doing all that you're doing? Mm -hmm. Because I am channeling my energy in really specific ways, but by, I am called, I am called. And that's another thing that you understand with yoga is you have a call, you have a purpose like is revealed to you when you get quiet, when you go inside and when you know. So people who are like floating through life and they don't know, and they go to a regular yoga class and you're like, oh, that was stupid. You have to have better teachers. You can't yeah. go to a new teacher. You have to go to a real teacher. Is the body movements just an access to connect to those energy flows? Yeah. I mean, the okay. body movements are instrumental for Westerners because we can't stay still. We can only stay still in sedentary lifestyle. We don't know how to stay still in meditation. So like a mindfulness practice, a seated mindful, like a big M mindfulness practice mm-hmm. would be contraindicated for most Westerners because we're too mentally ill. We don't have the posture, right? But Our culture is so psychologically fucked. It's not even hundred percent. But the yoga pose of the asana, as you, you know, those are the poses. Yeah. They're a really great gateway in because you get into a flow state. If you start to understand the names of the poses and can just do them and you're not thinking and you're like in this moving meditation, it's some people's first time feeling in a flow state because they don't know their purpose. They have never right. gone into like a creative, you know, all nighter like you and I both do all the time where we're just so drawn by our calling that yeah. we can't stop. There's no way. Not everybody has that. And I'm not talking about mania. I'm talking about they're having those experiences in the yoga studio. They're hearing the chanting. They're like, oh my gosh, there's this like latent energy in me. And you're teaching yoga teachers actually how to give that to people. I am teaching them to wake up. Yeah. I'm asking. That's all. That's like literally what I've always felt we need and you're doing it. That's what I'm doing. I'm getting their trust and I'm, I'm growing community first. And then we end there. We yeah. end there. I would never start there. They'd be like, who is this? Who, who, wackadoo? Yeah. I'm building trust. I'm building rapport. I'm giving skills. I'm giving curriculum. We're doing content. Well, I, I think I would say you're building, you're building merit. When we get to the end, when you heard everybody, I said, you, you heard I said, I'm building merit. Yeah. yeah exactly. it's, not, it's not really a trust thing. It's more of a merit thing. And they're like unlocking achievements in a video game to get to the place where they're psychologically ready to understand what's available. Yeah. And when you understand what's available, you're like, well, fuck, what is holding me back? And all in, you know, you call them the rackets or whatever in your landmark, the things that you, that are obstacles begin to fall away. They just do. Mm -hmm. And it's like becoming yourself, even at 70, a lot of my students are like in their sixties and seventies. 
becoming yourself, even if you're 70, is so rewarding. They're like crying happy tears. It's the most, you know, it's a circle because I feel like I'm facilitating something so powerful and I get back so much. Just the recognition that they're having that, that experience to me is like, that's amazing. It's amazing what you're doing. It's really amazing. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you had brought something up and I didn't, I didn't want to skip over it because I think we had to take a break or we, something changed. You mentioned you had a, a friend who committed suicide and then we somehow didn't talk about it. Yeah, that's just happened. It was very sad. I have a very mentally ill, my best friend in the world was battling psychosis and other, you know, substance abuse and other things that uh, connected back to some of the things we were talking about earlier. And it was just a fatal, if you could think about cancer, like it's terminal, there are some mental illnesses that are terminal. Right. Most people should try everything and hang on, but some people have hung on and tried everything and they can't get better. Right. And I just like, I want people to know that I don't condone frivolous, spontaneous suicide, but that I really, when I sit with what happened to my best friend, honor the choice, no matter how hard that must have been, because I cannot imagine walking a day in the type of pain some people live in. There's there's no way to know. I mean, right. It's like, and even if you ever thought like, oh man, I really want to kill myself today. Like even like some people have like had that thought, like almost in jest where, I mean, for someone to really seriously be like, okay, should I even live anymore? It took years to arrive at that conclusion. Years. Like this was a not sudden. What I'm saying is I don't think either of us could even have the slightest understanding of how to relate to that experience. I don't, I, exactly. Cause both here's the thing about you and I, even though we change what we do a lot, it's because we love what we do and we're interested in a lot and we feel yeah. at harmony. And when we don't, we let things go and we move on. Right. Some people never, ever, ever experience harmony. No, but what I'm saying is I, I've certainly have had times like in my childhood, even now where like, I don't experience harmony, right? There's, right. And there's been some times in my life, especially when I was a teenager, where it was pretty dark. I was in some pretty yeah. dark places, but it never, I mean, if suicide, if suicide on a scale of like one to a hundred, where one's like never going to kill myself and a hundred's like, I need to die tomorrow, a second from now, maybe yeah. I was like, instead of a one, I was a three, even though I was like, yeah, man, maybe life just sucks and it's not worth living. I don't really mean that to myself. It's like, I'll say it to myself, but I didn't mean it to myself. Because people right. say all kinds of dumb shit to themselves. So it's like, I can even think, okay, life's kind of tough today, but I'd rather live, a, even if, if that was the, the peak of my experience on earth, I'd rather still live like a horrible, terrible, tough, life is awful life than kill myself. That was my psyche. Right. I think that, so this is what I talked to my, I have a, uh, there, I highly recommend people have therapists. Uh, I know you're, you have different thoughts about that. But no, I don't. I think therapists can be great. Can be right. So I have I think therapists. therapists can be horrible. Like there's, I, there's I got, great therapists and bad therapists, like any, any profession. I just, I would say though, there's a lot of really bad therapists. I think it's a bad fit therapist. I don't think that there are bad therapists. Well, there, there are oh, no, there's a lot of bad. There's a lot of objectively really bad therapists. And part of the reason for that is the way psychology is taught in school. Like if you want to be a psychologist or a therapist and get a degree, the way that the training is really, really bad. So it, it doesn't leave, you know, if you want to be a heart surgeon, 
even a, a below average heart surgeon can still do heart surgery. Maybe have too high of a failure rate, but it's still going to be mostly successful. You're still a fucking heart surgeon. Well, psychotherapists do have to get uh, accredited, like a licensing. I, I know, but what, I, what I'm saying is the licensing for a psychologist is does not mean you're going to be good at helping people. I agree. So let, let me just say what I was, where yeah, I was Yeah, yeah, please. Okay, so when my best friend died, obviously, I, even though I kind of knew it was coming, I was, I am devastated, but I was, the past three months have been excruciating. Mm-hmm. And I know my career is like doing really well, but some days I could barely stand. Like I collapsed many times. This was a huge loss for me. Best friend of 15 years. And I'm trying to understand it more, right? So just talking to my therapist, a suicidal mind is a type of illness in and of itself. Mm-hmm. There is a fantasizing. There is an obsession. All you do, your full-time work mentally is figuring out how and when you want to die. And you have to push everyone out because relationships feel like burning. Because if someone loves you that much, you can't do the one thing you know you need to do to be okay. Mm-hmm. So there's a big problem here because like we want to fix it. We want to help. We want to love. And that person cannot receive that love oftentimes when they've gotten to a certain point in the progression of the sickness. So suicidal mind is actually its own kind of sickness. Is it almost like, and I would imagine there's probably many variations of this, right? Tony Robbins has, you know, an incredible track record and working with people who are suicidal, actually hundred, he has to this day, a hundred percent success rate of people who are suicidal well, he wouldn't know because they're not going to be able to call and report their deaths to him. <laughs> or or he keeps track. I don't know. But I mean, he he is publicly reported and I don't right. think he's yeah. lying about data. I mean, I know he's done really important work. I'm not trying to minimize that. But. Yeah. And and, there, and there's quite a few people in the psychology field who've said their, their success rate is, you know, off the charts with suicidal patients. So I, I would imagine there's different variations of people who on the surface are suicidal. But what I was thinking, there's a condition. There's people who feel like they shouldn't have some like some limb or some body part where they have like an obsession of like, like I need my leg amputated. I don't, I shouldn't have my legs. And it like, it's like the, the, the most important thing is not to have an arm or not to have a leg or not to have both arms. And they'll actually either saw it off themselves or they'll go and get surgery to have like an amputation. And then there's nothing wrong with their limb. Have you ever, have you ever seen any like documentaries on this? It's I mean, I definitely heard about like people obs- like having these very strange compulsions. Yeah. But it's like, it's like more than like, it's, it's almost like they, it, their body doesn't seem right having the limbs that they have and they need to get rid of them. I wonder if there's some, you know, brain chemical response that's similar to that. I mean, it's, it's like, definitely a brain problem. It is, right. it is like. No one would be like well, I, I think that I shouldn't have my right arm today. Like that's, there's gotta be something going on in the brain for, for right, you I think really what you're saying that. is that it's, um, what's the word? Oh my gosh. My brain is like on pause. Pa- pathological is the word you're looking for. Mm-hmm. It's a pathological issue. Yeah. It's like, that's what you're looking for. It's a pathology. That person is like always thinking about that. Like there are people who are cannibals, right? And it's like, I need to be, or, or no, actually even, even or I need to be eaten. Like I need to, I need someone to eat me. Where does that come from? What that comes from is a psychosis is what that's called. And that's what my friend suffered from. And are you, are you born with that or does something happen? And um, well, you have predisposition to it. In women, it comes out in your late 20s and 30s, generally. And usually it comes out in the teens for boys. 
this is obviously a generalization. Sure, um, of course. You know, and people will probably think of it psychosis as like a schizophrenic. That person's uh, probably having a psychotic episode when you mm-hmm. can't tell what's delusion or real. Right. And the delusion that person is having is that their leg doesn't belong on their body, right? Or like for, for some people, the delusion is if I can't calm my mind in meditation, I need to commit suicide. It's an obsessive thought that they believe to be real mm-hmm. and that they cannot escape from with therapy, medication, or anything else that they do. Yeah. That is the level of disturbance that some people live with literally 24 seven. Yeah. And I wonder if I could find a psychologist that would say, no, even that can be cured and fixed. I wonder if that's out there. I mean, I I hope it's going to be, but I would say in defense of the the reason I say that, I don't know the answer, but the reason I say that I'm jaded saying this is that there are plenty of things that we do know are fixable very easily. You know, for instance, confidence issues, right? But hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, no, no, hold on, hold on. I want to just finish this thought. Okay. Okay. Someone has confidence issues, 99, I mean, unless they're someone like we're talking about. But for the most part, you can spend one to three days with a highly, highly trained coach. And you will be left with after that as your baseline. I'm not saying there's be moments where you you forget who you are. You don't trust yourself, but as a general baseline, you're pretty fucking highly confident as just that your natural expression. Yet people spend years and years and years and years and years of therapy and working on and coping with their insecurities to one day get to that place. And it blows my mind that in today's age with technology and you can post studies on the internet now that there's a whole group of people, including psychologists that don't know it's actually possible to reliably fix someone's confidence issues in a few hours to a few days max. So knowing that, that there's still this, like, we're only going to be open to what's in our own awareness. I wonder, and I don't know the answer. I wonder if there are psychologists saying, Hey, you know, when I've treated patients like that, they all get better. And I've been doing this for 30 years, but no one listens to me. I wonder if that exists. I would say that one of the things you're discounting is how severely your brain is damaged by certain kinds of trauma. And no, I'm not, I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying if you've been that damaged, see, and I wonder, hold on a second. So I wonder you actually get brain damage from trauma. Like your brain is. uh, Yes. Yes. I'm aware. Development is inhibited. I'm aware. So I'm wondering if there's anyone that said I've dealt with people that are brain damaged, you know, pathological, whatever you want to call it by all intents and purposes, unfixable, uncurable. And I have a hundred percent or 99% track record of doing it. And no one listens to me and they think I'm a quack. Like, I wonder if that exists. Well, I'd love to hear from that person. You know, I think we should give things a try. I think so too. So, you know, if there is a psychologist listening to this, and you're like, well, I have these experiences and, you know, come on my show and, and talk about it. But I think there's so much in the world of psychology and just the human experience we don't understand. And just in human nature, like we were talking about earlier, people want to get in their little fiefdoms about their position. And then we got to prove our position. So it's like, there are people, right? Where even if I said, you know, there's some people, right? If they're depressed, definitely have a mental disorder and that's the way they are. And it's be the way they are the rest of their life. And there's a whole group of people in their little fiefdom that no matter how much data, no, how many resources you share with them, 
that, well, they didn't take into account this. It's like, they're not willing to even look. And you see this in the medical profession, psychology. I mean, you see this in all, every profession, quite frankly. It's like a fixed, like fixed idea that. Yeah. People that are, people, a certain way. yeah, people are inherently all about being right and looking good. And if you've spent 20 years of your career saying one thing, it would look really bad. And you have to give up being right about a point of view to take into account a new way of looking at things. So right. it's why you can literally show someone journal after journal study on something. But if a doctor has a certain fixated view on, well, that's impossible. And this is how it is. They don't really care. And they'll find some way to use really weird mental tricks to justify. Not a good what, scientist though. Like I think. Like in every field, right. Where I said, not every psychologist is great, but a lot right. of them are great. There's a lot of really great researchers and scientists. There's a lot of really bad ones. A lot of really bad ones. It, but that's in any field. And I think actually I would say researchers tend to be for the most part, pretty good, but the people who rely on the research aren't always very good. You know, they did a study, I think it was Gary Tobbs who did the study and he polled doctors on how many of them, when they were citing research, read the actual study, not just the abstract. And it was like, out of like a thousand something that he polled, it was like, three had only ever actually read the actual studies. I'm surprised that anyone would admit that. Oh, this anonymous surveys and, and all that. But yeah, it, it, and he was like, wow, that's, that's disturbing because you can read abstracts and get it, not really understand how it came to that per se. Right. So interesting. You know, it is, is important to really look at how the truth is arrived at. I think having a fixed mindset. So actually in education, there's this thing called growth mindset where we don't have fixed mindsets about things. And it's all about like continuing to see mistakes as opportunities. And I think the current generation having mindfulness and yoga and growth mindset has the opportunity to psychologically prepare, to stay open-minded, to Man, give that it. That would be so good for just all our institutions. And I mean, that's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. That's what we're truly what a person who serves educators on like the highest level that is like what we want so deeply. And the problem mm -hmm. is that a lot of us aren't doing it first. When I work with teachers, the connection to their personal practice is everything. And we do, we reside there. Like we go so deep in because they have to be changed to, to make change. And of course. Yeah. How many of us and, um, and you included, you know, we're in school and had like a teacher that just was like really uninteresting and didn't seem to care. And there's like the fact that there's even one experience of that, right? It's like, you're taking a job that's not going to pay a lot of money. And your entire job is to educate the next generation of students. And you're like kind of a dumbass and not even that curious of a mind. Like, how does it like, what? You know, when I was a kid, that was like a disconnect for me. Like, how are you a teacher? Why, why would you even want to be a teacher? Well, that's not how they arrived at teaching. That's how they became. Because oh, it's interesting. Everything above a teacher is constantly changing. There's a revolving doors of initiative. There's a revolving door. Like the culture is constantly changing. That right. person is being asked to adjust and adjust and adjust and adjust. And the behavior is getting worse and worse and worse. And parents are also unable to meet their kids' basic needs. And so you wonder how that person got that way. But so there's all to, these concerns that you're not, you're not seeing and that are playing along in the background. It, that teacher needs your compassion because the cynical, jaded, exhausted, removed teacher went through everything to get there and, and so gave, gave so much. And as you said, they're not paid in a fair rate. 
they spend their time and money on free time and money on their students' welfare. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, because of taxes and systems above them and initiatives and presidents changing, whatever, whatever, it's a hard job to have for a long time. And you do need care practices and you do need new information. I think it has to be kind of incremental. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when you stagnate, it's because you can't take any new information in or you All don't right. want to. That makes sense. That, makes that person sense. needs a sabbatical, you know, but they wouldn't get paid for it. That's why we see that. That person is either done with this industry and doesn't know what to do next, needs a sabbatical, right? But like I work with those people and I rescue them. Like I had a lady who took my training in 2015 and she just retook a bunch of my, she took like five modules of my 95. And I was like, oh, what brings you back? And she said, well, you saved my career once. And now I'm back again because I need help. You're, you're like, you ever meet those people who just like work with like, like an animal rescue, you know, save crocodiles in Africa or, you know, something like that. You're like that, but for like human teaching, do you, you. Do you ever, are you ever not compassionate? Like, do you, do you know how to not be compassionate or are you just this ball? Yeah, I do. I yeah. have a fight or flight reflex that is dizzying. And it's part of why I ended up doing what I do because I can be so conscious. I can be so kind and and generous. And then something happens to make me feel unsafe. And I'm a completely different person because I'm transported to a powerless, voiceless child. Right. And so that's why I have compassion also for people who mess up and for like teachers that are doing a bad job. (laughs) All of us, we walk with these scars, you know, and, and the cool thing about mindfulness is you can put a pause sometimes, but even the times I've paused, I still can watch it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm watching myself actually still have a fight or flight response. The Mm -hmm. pause didn't stop the trauma response from happening. It just gave me awareness that I was coming into it instead of just suddenly being there. Mm -hmm. So um, I wish there was a magic wand. I wish that we, but there isn't. I think like, you know, some of these programs you do, like I think for certain people, especially with confidence issues or narrative issues, those are really great. But I, I will just say, we need to pair those with really high quality personal development that is lifelong. Yeah, I think absolutely. Things, and the things like I do, like they they really marry well. Keep people checked yeah, they, in, motivated, questioning their assumptions, and like you you want to have you, you want to have a an environment that it's just a look like any like we were just t- again on another podcast talking about this how. You have an organism that doesn't have an environment to thrive, it, it will literally die. So right. there are certain benefits, right? Where if you can get some breakthrough in like a few hours or a few minutes, that's very valid. And, you know, all the data has shown that that is lifelong and, and lasting. But then there's another completely way of approaching things where I can build a sustainable environment that pulls for that, then you create significantly more sustainability around that. When that's in my mindfulness book, one of the things I talk about is creating a sanctuary in whatever space you have. Mm-hmm. I mean, altar, you know, look at, you can look behind me, you can see like beautiful lights and plants. That's a sanctuary space for me. This is where I go to sleep and think and creating a sanctuary. It's actually why I clean. It's not because I have a problem with a mess. I don't give a shit. Even like I can't like sleep well if my place is too messy. I can fall asleep with a mess, but as soon as I get up, I take my daughter to school, I come home and I clean. So no, like, I, what I'm saying is if I, if I like clean, it's pristine, beautiful, best night, best night sleep of the week. I don't know why I, I get more, more work done. It's psychologically helps. 
yeah. So I think um, I may have to leave you there because my, right. my daughter is home and it's snowing and I want to take her. Can you do, do can, can you, can you, before we finish, can you like lead us out with some like some namaste thing or, or like well, sure. I was going to lead us through a breath. Let's so, do it. Um, let's do it. All right. So take a warm, heavy hand to your heart and a warm, heavy hand to your belly. Okay. Let your belly relax. Okay. So you're not like holding it in. No one's looking at it. You can mm-hmm. either close your eyes or focus your eyes gently. Okay. Just feel the sensation of your hands on your skin. And then notice that your body is breathing. You don't have to do anything to your breath. Notice where breath comes in. Notice where it feels like breath goes. Keep your awareness on the breath. Bring your awareness into the sensation of your hands on your body. Bring your awareness into the face. If your eyes are closed, relax behind the eyes. See what it feels like to not wait for the eyes to open. You might feel remaining tension in the face. Just notice where and ask yourself, is it possible to release tension anywhere in the jaw, in the mouth, the forehead? And for a moment, bringing gratitude and compassion into your heart for your effort, maybe mentally making the statement, thank you. Say thank you, Eric. Fill in your name. Thank you, Eric. And then keeping your eyes closed, just... Rub your hands together to create a little bit of warmth. Bring the hands over the eyes and slowly open your eyes, bringing the hands down into your lap as you're ready. How do you feel? Damn good. I feel a lot of like almost like a waterfall down my forehead Mm. of calm. (laughs) That was nice. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah. I'm excited for your new podcast. I will share it. And I'm always on your side, on your team. Likewise with you. It was great to have you on. So good to be here. I'll see you again soon. All right. Sounds good. See ya. Let's go. Let's go. Five, four, three, two, one. The Average Lion Podcast.